We open up scriptures this morning with Revelation chapter fi chapters 15 and 16. It may sound long in an era of sound bites, but as the scripture that we're about to read says, blessed is the one who stays awake. <laughs> and it really shouldn't be difficult. There's great imagery in this story. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel, poured out his bowl into the sea, and became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. 
for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. David. I feel like it's easier to get a praise be to Christ from like Colossians or, you know, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe I'm imagining that. I don't know how well we know each other, but I hate platitudes and trite statements, especially as they relate to Christianity. And one that, that really bothers me is when we jump ahead and tell someone, especially who's in an acute moment of, of suffering or pain, you know, all things work together for good for those who love God, which is true. And yet, we need some perspective. First of all, the context of that verse is in the new heavens and the new earth, we will understand both the importance of this life and the importance of what we went through and the importance of this life in light of God's renewal of all things. We must deal with and engage chapters like this in order to then more fully understand those promises that probably ought not to be on Hallmark cards, nothing against Hallmark. The army sings in chapter 15, and what they're singing about is something that we understand in part that we will understand more fully later, which is this. Evil and injustice must be dealt with. In this case, God even allows evil to participate in destroying evil. Bowls 5 and 6 and 7 are more political in their ends than natural, as bowls 1, 2, 3, and 4 are. One of the many things that we will understand in the new heavens and new earth is why and how God allowed so much pain and suffering and evil in the world. And one of the things that we'll understand in greater measure than we can now, though we can begin to understand it philosophically now, is sometimes God allows evil to flourish as we would esteem it in order to destroy evil. What God does is execute justice. And what we do is respond to his love when and where we can as we are called. And the reason I say that is because sometimes we read chapters like this and we feel triumphal about them. And that is not what we are to do today. 
the tone of chapters 15 and 16 is one of sadness and lament, which is why these plagues bother us perhaps even more than the earlier plagues, even though the earlier plagues are actually worse. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Sometimes Christians, frankly, are overly excited about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. God is a God of love. John wrote in one of his letters, God desires all to be saved. The revelation has the broadest perspective on the repentance of individuals and the nations. And so the fact that God is going to fully and finally deal with evil is something that makes us mad, or not mad, something that makes us sad, not mad at all, and draws us into hope and to trust him. Because which of us has ever seen or experienced justice that was actually pure. We trust him and we hope. We do not feel triumphant today because it will not be pretty to watch the destroyers be destroyed, though it is necessary. And for John... What he expected his people to hear and then be encouraged by was the reality of calling Jesus Lord in 95 AD was that you might die for that. And so he expected us to understand that those powers that are so heinous and murderous and genocidal and enslaving will be dealt with. And in the meantime, to not call them Lord, but to call Jesus Lord will be challenging. But what, is, what do we do? We who are sealed in him, we sing. This is the army of the Lord mentioned in chapter 7 and chapter 14 of Revelation. This is a, a, an image that goes back to the throne room in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. And they're dressed for battle, as Revelation would esteem, esteem it. They're set up in a military census drawn from the book of Deuteronomy and 1 Samuel. That's how John understood it. John didn't write it because it's in Deuteronomy and Samuel, but because of Deuteronomy and Samuel, he understood this is an army. And yet, what do they have in their hands? Swords, pikes, bows, halberds, maces, morning star. Morning star is like a mace with like a chain on it. No, I should stop naming obscure weapons, right? <laughs> what do they have in their hands? Harps. Because the battle is his. And he is the only one who understands justice fully and purely. And yet as John is watching this, the words of the song reminded him of Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. And the shape of Revelation 15 and 16 reminded him of the Exodus. And so he described it as the song of Moses because the theme of the New Testament, I hope you know this already, is the Exodus. The nation of Israel being rescued out of slavery, literally, by God. The nation of Egypt being warned, which is an opportunity for them to repent. And then they're led into the promised land. The work of Christ is a greater exodus that will end with a greater promised land called the new heavens and the new earth. And John is seeing this and he's understanding his Old Testament more thoroughly. And that's why he reminds us the song of Moses. The army sings as the angels prepare. Who does the pouring? Sometimes when Christians talk about the end times, I feel like they're a little too excited. I'm just going to be frank. 
we don't participate in this because we do not understand justice the way that Christ does. The angels do the pouring because though they were given free will, their free will operates differently than ours. They are messengers and, and heralds of God who do his bidding, and so they do the work. Because let's be honest, we couldn't handle this work. It's not for us. We have other work to do that's either as important or even more important than them. And yet we are not the ones that do the pouring. You remember those pictures of Obama before and after office? Did you guys see those? Whether you like him or not, you got to see a picture of him before office. Looks so vibrant. <laughs> and then eight years later, so much gray hair, which gray hair is awesome. But <laughs> the, the issue is that all that he learned and all that he saw in office and all that he was or wasn't trying to do, it aged him. And similarly, I think we can struggle with the revelation and yet there's a grace that who does the execution of this? God and the angels. And that helps us remember that our perspective is limited and remember that our definitions of and pictures of justice are imperfect and limited and we don't feel triumphant about what's about to happen. We're trusting that God is good and loving and just and holy. Chapters 15 and 16 have a little bit different tone than the other uh, natural disasters that we see earlier in Revelation. And the reason is, I believe, this is the beginning of the end. This is when the revelation, this part of the book is when the revelation begins to encourage you about your life today in light of what's going to happen in the future. That's a textbook definition of Jewish apocalyptic literature. So we're not here yet. We're not in chapters 15 and 16. And so the question that pops into our mind, especially those of us, uh, well, hopefully for all of us, is why does God wait? Why does he wait to put all things to rights? Why is he waiting to return? John's answer, because John has the most broad picture of people being saved. In 1 John, he says, God desires all men to be saved. In the Revelation, there's an almost constant expectation that women and men will see the grace and the power of Jesus and repent. Even in chapters 15 and 16 where it's being lamented that they don't repent, there's still an expectation because that's how prophecy works. When you warn people that God is just and that the world is unjust, they often turn to him. The reason that God waits, I believe, according to John, is because of love. God longs to seal more people to his son through faith in Jesus. The revelation moves this way, verse, chapters one through three prepare us for, this, for these cascading images through the letters to the churches and through the description of who Christ is. Chapters four through 10 are really the story of the church in the world even before Christ. And then chapters 11 through 14, and then it transitions a bit in chapter 14, are the story of the church as the faithful witness to the gospel of God in the midst of a world where the evil one is still present. If you go back and read it with these headings, I know you're writing all this down, but you're like, oh, so this is the king's perspective on the world as it actually is in light of the grace of Jesus and the fact that he is not yet shackled and thrown into the lake of fire, the evil one. But now in chapter 15, we begin to see the downfall of the machinations of the beast 
the political power under the sway of the dragon, the propaganda machine, that's beast number one, the propaganda machine of that power, beast number two, which is sometimes in collusion with religious voices, which I will call the deep things of Satan, quoting one of the letters to the churches in the earlier parts of the book. When religious language is used as propaganda for economic power and people die or are enslaved, that is as evil as it gets. And the reason I'm telling you that is not because I enjoy it or think that it's going to encourage you directly, but indirectly. Haven't we seen enough genocide and slavery and sin and death and pain? The army sings that the angels prepare the bowls of God's wrath. And because of the tone of Revelation 15 and 16, I think we miss something with these bowls. And is that they are actually far less severe than the trumpet blasts and the breaking of the seals earlier in the book. I believe those are things that have been happening throughout human history. And these might be also, you know, Revelation is in no way sequential. Did you catch that the false prophet is brought up, though we haven't met him yet? We meet him later in the book, and yet he's brought up here. These are actually less severe, but the finality of them draws up, at least in me, a sadness. And yet no humans die. Did you catch that? In the first service I said no, one's, no one dies, but apparently some fish die. And by the way, like when, when, that's true. When John is seeing this revelation, he sees a vision and there's water and everything and it dies. This is not him flying all around the earth like Superman. He doesn't see the world the way that we see it. And the Bible is not at all concerned with those questions. The Bible is concerned with a vision that helps us understand our lives today in light of the king's perspective on our lives today and our lives today in light of the future. That's the concern of the visions that God gave to John that he understands by knowing his Old Testament probably better than all of us at the same time. And you see his holiness through the throne room and his holiness cannot coexist with this world. Did you catch that? There's a door and we can't be in his holiness until the bowls have been poured out. Because his holiness cannot be in the presence of unholiness. His perfect justice must collide through the bowls of wrath with the injustice that has swept the world since men and women stopped trusting him. He is a being of absolute and perfect love in a world where we are incredibly gifted at harming one another. And it's challenging to embrace the justice of God and the fact that the solution in part to the presence of evil is to allow it to destroy itself. That's Bulls 5, 6, and 7. And yet, love without strength, we talked about this last week, isn't love. Love that doesn't stand up for what is right isn't love. It is some kind of a softer sentiment that we can't rely upon. One of the differences between these bowls and uh, the trumpet blast and the seal breaking earlier in the book is how many of them are there? Did you notice? All seven happen in this chapter. This is a clue for us that this is the beginning of not only apocalyptic, so something's being uncovered, but also eschatology where this is the beginning of the end. Earlier when the trumpet blasts happen, six of them happen, but not the seventh. The time is not yet complete. 
And here's the seventh. And at the same time, Revelation is far more like Guernica, the giant mur- Did I say it right? Okay, thank you. I checked with the first service. They were clear with, you know, and they're, they're pretty hardcore about that stuff. You know the giant mural that Picasso painted about the atrocities that happened in Spain. And if you look at the whole thing, you get one picture. And if you zoom in really closely, you'll see another picture. And then you look at a section. The revelation is like that. Perhaps what John is seeing is the same thing that happened in the earlier chapters, but from another version, from another vantage point. All of the horrific natural disasters that happened in the revelation reminded him immediately of the Exodus. Because this is the point when the people of God are led away from their captors into worship of him and then into the new promised land. If we want to get to the new heavens and the new earth, we must see a holy God judge injustice. We must see a loving God judge harm. The army sings as the angels prepare the bowls of God's wrath. And the people do not repent. And it's mentioned multiple times as a lament. It is sad to watch. It was sad to watch for John. It was sad to hear for the seven churches, though encouraging to them because the beast seemed absolutely overwhelming to them. They're in churches of probably 40 to maybe 100 at this point. It's been a number of decades since Christ, and yet the power of the Roman Empire is largely what they saw in these visions. And God is saying, I will allow this evil to destroy itself. I'm struggling with what to say about Armageddon because I just thought the movie was so mediocre. When the Revelation speaks very, very specifically, we need to be more careful than when it speaks with a barrage of images. Armageddon is a play on a Hebrew word because it actually means Mount Megiddo, and there is no Mount Megiddo. There's a valley, and then there's a close mountain, and some people talk about that, and there's another mountain. What we need to catch when John talks about that is that is where evil comes together to destroy itself. The armies of the east as the the waters dry, which is an Old Testament imagery for the beginning of the end of that season of Babylon, meet the armies of the beast, which is Rome. That's what happens there. Remember what the Lord's army is doing. They're singing. They're playing their harps. They're worshiping because that's what the people of God do. And yet throughout this section, there's repeated mention that the nations do not repent. And it is one of lament in the same way that when you have a family member who you know desperately needs the hope and the peace and the life of the gospel in their life and they reject it, we lament. Now we're given the king's perspective on the whole world and the nations of the world and what it looks like that they refuse to worship him. This is the king's perspective on evil, evil on display, evil explained, and the alternative In this case, is mentioned indirectly, but what's the alternative for us? It's to not worship that. It is to worship Christ. And the revelation is quite clear that we all worship something and we have but, well, we all worship something. I feel like this is like the vegetables section of the Bible. 
although some of us really love vegetables now. As I get older, I kind of love vegetables. But when I was a child, you know, I knew that I needed to eat them. I didn't want to as much as I wanted to eat other things. And yet, how could we call God holy, loving, good, just, if we did not expect him to eventually pour the bowl of God's wrath on the throne of the beast, on the economic powers that enslave and murder, and then on the propaganda machines that make it all possible and lead people to worship that instead of Christ. We do get to now understand more profoundly, though still in very limited fashion, the promises of Romans 8. That all that has happened to us will be explained and given back to us in greater measure. Can you even imagine that? I read a book on it two years ago by one of my very favorite authors and I could not read it quickly because my heart could barely imagine the pain in my own life and in yours, much less the pain of the world, not only being explained in a way that we understood the redemption of it, but then that joy given back to us in the new heavens and the new earth. That's challenging to imagine regardless, but with the more challenging parts of the scripture showing us God's judgment on these things, perhaps we're able to go towards it, to lean into it with clearer eyes. In the middle of this, Jesus says what he said in Mark chapter 13, what he said in parables in Matthew chapter 13, what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, the application of eschatology. So eschatology is end time stuff, right? Apocalyptic just means uncovering. Eschatology is end time. So we're good on all the Greek words? Okay, good. We had Latin today, we had Greek, English. It's been a great day. The application of eschatology is stay awake. And stay awake doesn't mean be exhausted for Jesus. Commandment number four, one of the most profound ways that we evangelize is to learn to rest. It's not be tired for Jesus, but it is stay awake. You still have a role in the kingdom. Did you know that? Those of you that are a little more seasoned citizens. Harvey Moger called me last week to talk about three different issues in the church. One concerning, his, he's 92 by the way, one concerning his calling one concerning mine and one concerning the church. And I was so encouraged. He knows his work is not complete. He is staying away. And Harvey is an imperfect fellow. Okay? I'm not holding him up as the example. But I am saying he knows his work is not complete at 92. And neither is yours. God calls you to himself and gives you life, saves you from the worst from the, the ultimate slave masters and oppressive powers of Egypt, which are sin and death, New Exodus imagery, he calls you to himself, but not only to save you, but as an agent into his army. And I don't love the word army, but I do because this army sings and worships and loves neighbor and is generous and kind, and they work towards reconciliation when where they find themselves. That is the application of all eschatology and it's why Jesus himself jumps in to speak into this saying stay awake you have work to do because God has called you to himself he has placed you where he placed you on purpose as an agent of love and reconciliation would you pray with me
Father in heaven, we do indeed believe that you are great. We trust your greatness as it interacts with justice, as it interacts with the atrocities and harms promulgated in this world. We trust you, Lord, and yet we ask that you help us to trust you. We ask that as these images wash over us, we would hold them in tension with your loving and good heart. And yet, Lord, we are confident because you have commanded us to be that you will judge evil. And we are thankful for that. Holy Spirit, attend to us in worship. Help us to remember the gospel this morning, this afternoon, and this week as we await your return. Amen.